One of my favorite parts of giving a Dharma talk is sitting up here at the beginning, listening to all the sounds as people settle in, the rustles, the pops of the chair, the adjustments, and listening to it slowly settle. It brings a lot of delight to hear that, feel that settling happen. Hmm. Tonight the topic is effort and energy. And in some ways this is uh, connected to the, what we might call the art of meditation because we all have to find our way to how we bring our effort and energy into the practice. The Buddha did offer us some guidelines and some suggestions. And in particular, the Buddha uh, encouraged us to apply ourselves with wisdom and balance. And so one of the things I'd like to start with or explore a little bit at the beginning is what is the wisdom that helps us in making effort? In one of the Theravadan lists, the paramis, the the perfections, the ten perfections, this is a series of beautiful, wholesome qualities that it's said that the Buddha cultivated in the many lives before he became the Buddha. And in that list, it's a sequence of 10 beautiful qualities. And in that list, wisdom and energy are pretty much right in the middle of that list. Slightly, slightly off-center, but... um, And wisdom directly precedes energy in that list, pointing to the way in which we need to have some kind of wisdom in how we use our energy in practice. Wisdom itself, I'm sorry, energy itself is a, a neutral quality. It is the same kind of energy that is connected with and associated with anger, confusion, hatred, Pride, greed, irritation, as it is associated with love, joy, kindness, generosity. And so energy itself is neutral and and the Buddha really encouraged us to look at how we use that energy. Use it in ways that will help us become free. And so wisdom is really a foundation for us. It's, it's in the first position in the Eightfold Path, wise view and wise intention. 
first two factors of the Eightfold Path, really highlighting wisdom, the importance of our perspective, how we engage in the practice. It's said that after his awakening, that the Buddha kind of reflected on the world and human beings in the world and how they go about living their lives and said that he realized, he recollected, he understood that while beings want to be happy and do things in order to find happiness, that they're actually doing the very things that keep them stuck in struggle and suffering. Kind of our usual worldview, in a simplified way, is something like having things or being seen in a certain way will make me happy. And this has a measure of happiness when we do get things that we want or people see us in the way that we'd like or we feel like we can control what we're doing. There's a measure of happiness that comes from that, but it is not reliable. Things are impermanent. And so having things is not a very reliable source of happiness. And we all know how our own minds change like that. And our views and opinions of other people are not very stable often. And so to think that we can find our happiness in having other people's views and opinions be the way we want them to be, that's pretty unreliable. And so the Buddha actually recognized that the very way that we go about our lives, we are placing our faith in things that are not reliable. We're placing our, we're trying to find happiness, we're placing our faith and our trust in happiness in things that are impermanent, in things that are unreliable, in things that are out of control. And in his own awakening, his expression, it said his first teaching after his awakening, was connected to this understanding of suffering, recognizing suffering is created or caused by craving, clinging in the mind, and that it is possible to be free from that craving, leading to a release from suffering. And there's a path for this, a path to cultivate this direction. And so an understanding of suffering, an understanding of what takes us towards suffering, what takes us away from suffering, is kind of foundational for what the Buddha taught. And this is a piece of wisdom, the piece of wisdom. There's many, there's many different ways that wisdom is pointed to in the Buddhist teaching. But this particular one, there's certain 
qualities, states of mind that tend to head us in the direction of suffering, certain qualities, states of mind that tend to lead us away from suffering. This is the one I'd like to look at. The Buddha pointed to unskillful, unwholesome states being those that are based in greed, aversion, and delusion. We've talked about this before. These are all of those states that lead to reactivity in our minds or are reactivity in our minds. Anger, hatred, confusion, pride, irritation, depression, boredom. So many different states. Hundreds, probably, of different reactive emotions that happen in our minds. But they have this thread back to being connected with greed, aversion, and delusion. And the understanding, which James pointed to the other day when he talked about intention, is that when we act intention also being a, uh, a neutral quality of mind, when we act and that intention towards action is connected with greed, aversion, and delusion, that's what tends to head us to suffering. And when we act with that intention connected with wholesome states, states based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, and this includes love, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, Concentration, mindfulness, generosity, wisdom, ethics, ethical conduct, truthfulness. Many, many, also many qualities that are wholesome qualities of mind. When we act from those qualities of mind, we tend to head in the direction of freedom. It takes us on a different path. And so this understanding of what leads us to suffering and what leads us away from suffering is what the, the Buddha grounded his teaching on wise effort in. Wise effort really points to recognizing and cultivating those states that lead us away from suffering and letting go of states that lead us towards suffering. So wise effort, start there in this, t- this reflection on effort and energy. The Eightfold Path includes wise effort as a whole path factor. And it's got a definition, a very clear definition. And I'll just name it at first. It's, uh, there are four kinds of wise effort the effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen. I'll go over that in a minute. (laughs) The effort towards the abandoning of unwholesome states that have arisen. The effort towards the arousing of wholesome states that have not arisen. And the effort towards the maintaining or sustaining of wholesome states that have arisen. 
Now, these may sound a little convoluted, but they're not actually when we start to look at them. And so the first one, the effort towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that's, that have not arisen. Three negatives in that sentence. How do we parse that one? Basically, it's understanding, looking at our experience, using mindfulness, observing what happens, and recognizing causes and conditions that tend to lead us towards suffering, struggle, and avoiding those causes. Now this, another way to, to frame this is as avoiding unwholesome states, this first one. Avoiding unwholesome states. The, wor- the, the use of avoiding here, however, I mean, avoiding we have associations with. We have a relationship to that word. And um, if we um, apply our usual relationship of avoiding to this path factor, we may find ourselves engaging in aversion towards unwholesome states. And so I want to kind of tease this apart. This is not about aversion to unwholesome states. So for instance, suppose you notice that every time you see a particular person that you feel agitation and and reactivity. On the surface of it, you might think that avoiding the... um, the causes of that, looking at this kind of in the, in the big picture of what you're noticing right now, it's like seeing that person creates the conditions for being reactive. So what I should do is avoid that person. We might think that, that that would be what is instructed here. There may be times that that is useful and skillful, a skillful means for finding a way to begin to explore what's going on in the minds with this particular situation. But a deeper look at this, I mean, fortunately for us, other people do not have the power to do anything to our minds. And so seeing another person, you know, that that other person that we come into reactivity around, it's not as if that person is doing anything to us. There's something going on in our own minds. And I think what this teaching around avoiding the causes and conditions is to begin to get really curious around what are the actual things happening? What's going on in the mind? It's not just about seeing somebody and like seeing somebody that seeing somebody pushes some button that creates the reactivity. There's a whole series of events that happen. Can we get curious about that? Maybe that person uh, has a gesture that reminds you of somebody that actually um, did you some harm in the past. And that that uh, gesture is what's leading to the reactivity. That gesture and that connection, that memory connection is what's leading to the reactivity. And so we can 
know, look at, explore the deeper conditions and begin to um, be curious about them. And in this, in this uh, exploration, we might begin to be able to recognize, okay, so there's this, this thought that arises. It's, it, so we can begin to decouple it from the particular person. It's not so much about that particular person. And we see that it's more about the memory that we're reacting to. And so in this exploration, we see that the, uh, the avoiding of the state isn't so much about the avoiding of the person, but more about understanding the deeper reactivity. As we begin to meet in our minds with mindfulness, the kind of agitation that comes up as a result of a memory, there's a deeper kind of letting go that begins to happen. Or another example of this, perhaps you might notice that, um, maybe a simpler example in a way, you might notice that um, when you go to stand in the lunch line that uh, it, or when you're in the lunch line, when there's a lot of people around, you see yourself judging a lot. You notice people taking a lot of food or different kinds of food or filling their plate in a different way and there's judgment either. Wow, they do it really beautifully. Look at how beautiful that plate is. Or they're taking too much or too little or, or just right or I'm not taking the right amount. Or, so judgments arise. And again, we might think that this teaching of avoiding the conditions that lead to the judgment might mean, well, an easy way to avoid that judgment would be to, uh, to just go late to the lunch line so that I don't have to watch people put food on their plate. That, might, that would be one way to approach that, but more curiosity around what's going on there, just being curious about the judgment. And also being curious about where the mind leaves, because when the mind goes into judging, the mind is leaving the present moment. And so, uh, you know, Joseph Goldstein said he noticed this. You know, you're, you're in good company if you find yourself judging when you walk into the dining room. As Joseph said, this was a major practice for him. And at some point he said he recognized that what he should do when he walked into the dining room is note seeing. Because his mindfulness was going out the eye door. And when he started noting seeing, he just noticed movement. He noticed the, the, he was present for the seeing as opposed to being caught by judging what he was seeing. This is a really useful practice. This is a form of, um, a form of containing, guarding the sense doors in a sense. So instead of guarding the sense doors by avoiding the line entirely, we guard the sense doors with mindfulness. So using that, that's a way to explore this, avoiding the, the arising of the reactivity. So the second, the effort to abandon or let go of unwholesome states that have arisen. So the word abandon here also has kind of connotations for us. We think of abandoning also often as being uh, actively, like putting aside, actively uh, getting rid of. 
And there are times in our practice when a kind of an active recognition of, wow, this, I'm really caught by this. It's not helpful to try to be with this right now. Kind of a setting, it so, a setting aside, a not now approach. A kind of, uh, yeah, this is, this is overwhelming. I think we talked about this. You know, this is overwhelming. You can be here in the room with me, but I can't put attention on you right now. So I'm going to put attention on something else. That can be a skillful means. That's a way of of decoupling from uh, a reactivity. Or sometimes, I think um, one of the other uh, of my colleagues mentioned the, the replacing reactivity. If we're, if, we're, if we're noticing, for instance, seeing someone and that we're, we're reactive, we're judging someone or um, um, confused about something. Occasionally this happens in my mind where it just stops. (laughs) I'll, I'll get there, it's okay. So, um, so the um, the Buddha taught the uh, a tool of if we have some kind of reactivity going, that we can pick up another um, thought, like a wholesome thought, and replace it, replace the unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. And so, if there's anger, for instance, replacing it with a thought of metta. So, if you see somebody and you have anger arising a way to navigate that, to um, begin to let go or move away from it, might be to bring in a metta thought. May you be happy. May you be at ease. So these are ways to work with this form of wise effort, to let go of unwholesome states that, that we're experiencing. And yet, another way of letting go has a, is, an asso- is an association with a different definition of the word of abandon. Um, the, I, I looked up the word abandon at one point because the Buddha uses it in a couple of different places and I thought, what? you know, it's translated as abandon, so it's not what the Buddha actually used, but it's... It's an interesting word. And in some places, it kind of has a, what we might think of as a negative connotation. So like abandoning a child or you know, something like that, where we're, we're doing something that's not so helpful. But in other places, the, like the phrase, for instance, abandon ship, is a kind of a very natural movement of removing oneself from a place of danger. That's another use of that term, that when we abandon ship, we're abandoning something that's dangerous. And that's the notion, that's the kind of sense I think that the Buddha means when he says abandon unwholesome states. We begin to recognize the, the danger of these reactive states. And our mind 
And our mindfulness begins to recognize, oh, that, that hurts and it's not so helpful. And the mind begins to move to let it go, to abandon it because it understands the danger. And this is wisdom that understands that danger. This kind of abandoning happens through our practice of mindfulness. As we explore what does it mean to be with, be with, let be, perhaps, reactive states of mind. And we're doing a lot of this, a lot of this in our practice. This is so much of our practice, of our mindfulness practice. We notice the arising of, of confusion and hatred and boredom and craving. And we see what we can do to allow holding it in our mindfulness. This morning we talked about, uh, in the Q&A, bowing to our difficulties. Not being swept away by them, but opening to them, allowing them to be known with mindfulness. That practice has a potency and a power. Basically, my understanding of how that works is that with the mindfulness... As we're mindful of reactivity, as we're mindful of these unwholesome states, our mind gets an education. Often when we're caught by reactive states, so if we're caught by um, greed for something, for instance, if we're caught by wanting something, you know, our minds are are projecting into the future. Our minds are saying, it's going to be so great when I get that thing. Yeah, I'm on board. And the mind is in that fantasy of having that thing, and so that fantasy is pleasant. So the mind is going for that idea of some future pleasant. And in the, in the mind, it's created this pleasant fantasy. And so it's basically missing the fact that uh, the wanting itself, the craving itself, hurts. When we turn with mindfulness to the craving, when we turn with mindfulness to the reactivity, we cannot avoid recognizing, oh, wanting hurts, anger hurts. This is dukkha. We recognize that. The mindfulness recognizes the the suffering of it. And, And mindfulness and wisdom together begin to guide our minds in a different direction. It's like our minds have to get it that these reactive states are suffering. This is not a mistake. This is so much of how the practice unfolds. Another beautiful, great, favorite line from Joseph, for me at least, We want insight into dukkha, into suffering, without experiencing suffering. (laughs) And that isn't the way it works. 
the insight comes because we're willing to be with it with wise effort, with wise mindfulness. And the understanding grows from that. This is a lot. This kind of wise effort, the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen, this is a big part of our practice. Then the effort to arouse or bring about wholesome states that have not yet arisen. We can do this in a couple different ways. And one of those ways is, is cultivating wholesome qualities through kind of positive, inclining the mind towards those qualities. And we are doing that in the metta practice each day, in the Brahma Vihara practice each day. That practice is a practice of cultivating wholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. Also the practice of the fourth wise effort of sustaining wholesome states that have arisen because as the metta does begin to arise, the practice also sustains it. So this is, this is one of those practices. We, we uh, incline the mind through intention towards wholesome qualities. That's one way that this effort to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen works. Another way that it works is by... Um, and of not engaging in actions or situations that directly oppose those wholesome qualities of mind. So refraining from unwholesome actions cultivates wholesome mind states. And this is one of the, the ways that working with the precepts work. And in fact, in the, the, the Buddha the Buddhist teachings around the precept, he links each of the precepts with a wholesome quality. He says that cultivating, abstaining from killing living beings begins to cultivate compassion in the mind. Abstaining from taking what is not given cultivate, begins to cultivate contentment. And so the, the action of avoiding unwholesome action begins to cultivate wholesome mind states. This is a way in which we can see the first wise effort of avoiding unwholesome states that have not arisen because the precepts work there too. Precepts are about avoiding actions that will tend to lead to unwholesome states of mind. Refraining from killing, refraining from taking what's not given. So those, those precepts are functional in that first wise effort. But they're also, at the same time, the very same time we're avoiding the unwholesome. We are cultivating the wholesome. What a great thing. And we also explore cultivating mindfulness, which as my, uh, my teacher Sayada Upandita said, is the most wholesome mind state. Wise mindfulness, he said, is the most wholesome mind state. And that's a lot of what we're doing here too. We are cultivating mindfulness. The fourth wise effort, the effort to sustain wholesome states that have arisen. When I thought about this one for myself, you know, I thought, you know, well, why would that take work? <laughs> why would it take work to sustain something that is 
wholesome. And then I began to recognize, you know, two kind of tendencies in the mind. And one of those is that um, when something delightful or a wholesome state is arising, like joy or uh, bliss or concentration, you know, when wholesome states are arising, we can have a tendency to indulge in them. We can get lost in them. And so we can lose mindfulness. And as we, as we lose mindfulness of these um, wholesome states, we lose the conditions that support their arising. And so mindfulness of these wholesome states is one of the key ways to encourage their growth. It not only encourages their, their, um, uh, their sustaining them, but it also encourages them to arise more in the future. So again, mindfulness functioning both in the arousing wholesome states that have not arisen and in sustaining wholesome states that have arisen. So that indulging is one, is one side of what our minds can do with wholesome states. And to my surprise, I also sometimes found that when wholesome states were strong, they could be overwhelming. At one point, I was sitting up having breakfast and uh, I was experiencing a lot of joy arising. I was uh, just noticing the joy and it was pretty strong. It was pretty intense. And I, um, I was kind of like, whoa, I can't handle this. And there was some kind of trying to tamp down on it. So there was resistance to the joy because it was so intense. And then a little bit of wisdom flitted through, which said, it's okay, it's impermanent. It won't last. And with that, the mind let go of trying to repress it. And it got really strong. And then it kind of, it was kind of like a wave, it broke. And then it was kind of like tranquility came in. And it was like a beautiful kind of peaceful joy that followed. So mindfulness there was also the medicine, non-resistance. So recognizing the beautiful qualities, they are being cultivated as we practice. Sometimes people in hearing about wise effort there are, there are some times when we actually take action and there's, it, they're skillful means. These tools of wise effort can be skillful means and there are definitely times when it's time to put something down, set it aside, say not now. There are times when it's time to pick up the metta practice and actively cultivate it. So the, the, the practice of wise effort can sound like a lot of doing. And yet what I want to also point to is that the practice of wise mindfulness, which is largely what we're exploring, cultivating here, is we're inclining towards becoming present for what is arising. And sometimes people uh, ask the question, well, you know, 
we're practicing just looking at what's arising. You know, how does that connect with wise effort? We're, we're exploring settling back and just seeing what's coming and not kind of seeing, um, you know, feeling like there's a conflict there. Well, as we practice wise mindfulness, wise mindfulness itself actually already contains the four wise efforts. So let's, let's just think through it for a moment. If you are exploring an unwholesome state, so looking at the arising of anger, for instance, you're noticing anger, you are uh, exploring mindfulness of that anger. That is that second kind of wise effort right there, the, the letting be, the exploring, um, the letting be, the um, exploring the allowing wisdom to begin to support the letting go of an unwholesome state that has arisen. So that's that kind of wise effort right there with mindfulness. And simultaneously while that's happening, the mind is getting that education that, wow, this anger hurts, which creates the conditions for anger to arise less in the future. And so that's the first kind of wise effort, cultivating the conditions for the non-arising of unwholesome states. As we open with mindfulness to our reactive states, it creates the conditions for them to weaken, for them to get less strong, for them to begin to appear less and less in our minds. So that's the first kind of wise effort, right there as we're doing that practice. And then simultaneously with that, we're also cultivating mindfulness, which as my teacher said, wise mindfulness is the most wholesome mind state. And so we're cultivating the arising of mindfulness, the third kind of wise effort. And at the same time, we are practicing sustaining mindfulness that has arisen, the fourth kind of wise effort. And so there is no conflict as we practice noticing what's happening in our present moment experience with opening to it, we are already practicing the four wise efforts. And we find at times that we're not able to simply be with what's arising. And then it's useful to use some strategies to bring in some other tools that help us to let go of unwholesome states or cultivate wholesome states more actively. And this wise effort that we make, the Buddha connected that wise effort with a skillful energy. Often we equate energy and effort and sometimes we speak about them as kind of synonymous. The Buddha actually distinguished them a little bit. In one teaching he said that the faculty of energy, which is the faculty um, James talked about you know, in the very beginning of the retreat, he talked about the five faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. 
And the faculty of energy is um, kind of the, the, the energy that supports our practice. It's the energy that guides us in the direction of continuing, continuing to keep on with the path. And the Buddha said that this spiritual faculty of energy is the energy that results from making wise effort. So that's interesting. He says that energy results from effort. We don't usually think of it that way. We normally think of needing to use energy to make effort. And we do have to have some measure of energy. We have energy, actually. We, we have energy, the energy of life. There's energy in our, in our bodies just because we're sitting here alive. That energy can be harnessed in the direction of wise effort. And then that wise effort begins to create this wholesome energy. This is a beautiful thing, actually. Because it's not the case. I mean, the way we normally think about energy and effort is making effort uses up energy. And that when we make effort, we end up with less energy. And the Buddha says, no. When we make wise effort, we end up with wise energy. I told this to one of my uh, uh, daily life practice meetings, and, and somebody said, it's green, it's green energy. <laughs> So wise effort leads to skillful energy. There's some other supports for skillful energy that I just like to briefly point to. Um, you know, the, 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 some of the lists. Energy is actually in quite a few of the Buddhist lists. I just mentioned the list that James talked about, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. In that list, what precedes um, so when I talked earlier, I talked about the paramis list, and wisdom preceded energy there. And so that's like, okay, wise effort. Wisdom, the wise effort leads to energy. In the, in the faculties list, faith precedes energy. So this is another, an, another pointer to us for wise effort or wise energy. When there's a sense of trust, of confidence, of faith, that can bring a lot of energy to our system. That's, one of, that's another support for, for um, skillful energy. Sometimes we can tap into that by reflecting on the ways the practice has benefited us, reflecting on our appreciation for the Buddha, reflecting on our appreciation for our community. So kind of a reflection of the the triple jam, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. That can support faith, which can bring some energy into our system that we can harness for our practice. In another list, the seven factors of awakening, what precedes energy is investigation. Another clue for us. And this one I like to reflect on um, investigation is kind of akin to or uh, connected with the quality of curiosity and interest. 
when we are interested in what's happening, and we've been encouraging this, the kind of be curious about what's happening, be interested in what's happening. When we can tap into energy, into interest and um, curiosity, energy, again, energy is kind of, there's a natural arising of energy there. Especially when that curiosity is like, what's this, you know, what's this human experience of whatever this thing is that's happening right now? That leads to skillful energy. It brings a kind of a natural energy into our system. So as energy develops in our practice, we can then reapply it back to the practice. And yet it's helpful in our exploration of energy to begin to look at whether it's balanced. This is another aspect of the teaching on applying energy and effort that the Buddha really pointed to is that the energy needs to be balanced. He used the analogy of tuning a lute, a guitar-like instrument. And um, he asked one of his followers, you know, did you play the lute when you were a, a lay person? And that follower said, yes, I did. And the, the Buddha said, well, what happened when the string on the lute was too loose? Did it make beautiful music? No. Well, what if the string was too tight? Well, then the string broke. So you need to tune that string just right to make the music. He said, likewise, with our practice, the energy has to be balanced and tuned. Too much energy, we can often recognize because there's often restlessness in our system. Too little energy often results in sloth and torpor, dullness, sleepiness, drowsiness. Sometimes I found, actually, when exploring energy, exploring these um, imbalanced states of energy. It was actually supportive for me to recognize it as an imbalance of energy. So for instance, uh, during one long stretch of my practice, a couple of years stretch of my practice, sloth and torpor were a huge part of my practice and I just had to learn how to work with it. I really had to get to the to explore it. And one thing I began recognizing, I had so many attitudes and opinions about this dull mind. And, uh, you know, I would hear myself saying, this mind is way too dull to pay attention, you know. It's like, and yet, at some point, it's like, oh, it's too dull. And it's like, wait, seeing's happening. Oh, hearing's happening. Okay, I guess there's mindfulness going on. <laughs> and what I recognized is in the acknowledging that state as dull, there was already an attitude of aversion in that. And that when I started acknowledging it or recognizing, oh, this is a low energy state. It kind of made it, made the acknowledgement of it more neutral. So that's, that can be useful actually for us sometimes in exploring those states of high or low energy rather than 
attributing the, um, the uh, hindrance to them, which can have a slight flavor of aversion to it, as it did in my case. Right? Okay, this is a high energy state. Can I be with high energy right now? Yeah, okay, I can do that. So recognizing that high energy, one way to balance high energy is through mindfulness. One way to balance low energy is through mindfulness. There are times, as we've talked about, that there are strategies, useful strategies, again, to use to bring up the energy when it's low or to bring down the energy when it's high. But I'd encourage you to explore the possibility of mindfulness first before standing up or taking a brisk walk or opening your eyes. Oh, low energy, that's what's happening. Can I know that? Yeah, I actually can know that pretty clearly. Right there, that acknowledgement, that mindful recognition of low energy, it's like it dials up the energy just enough to meet that experience. So that's a way of increasing the energy. That's kind of the curiosity of what is this low energy? In exploring this balance of energy, one of the um, keys is how we, how much effort we make. We can, wise effort leads to skillful energy, and so the way we make our effort supports a balanced energy also. Often when we're making effort, you know, for instance, um, when we sit down at the beginning of a sitting, we may have the idea, it's like, okay, and I certainly did this, okay, I'm sitting down, it's a 45 minute sitting, I am going to be mindful for the whole thing. It's like I picked up the entire 45 minutes in that first second and tried to muster the energy to be there for the whole 45 minutes in that first second. And it doesn't work that way. Right now, how hard is it to know hearing is happening of my voice? How hard is it to know the sensation of your hands? Just check in your sensations of your hands. How about the contact of your hips against a chair or cushion or bench? How about a breath? Usually, that is not too hard. In a moment, when I mention each of those areas, often, it's right there. Didn't actually take too much effort to do that. A moment of mindfulness takes a very, very small amount of energy, of effort. What's harder to do is to sustain it over time, to keep going with it. And 
it's often helpful rather than to think about picking up the whole 45 minutes at once to do it in small chunks right now notice an in-breath and how about an out-breath just enough effort how about enough effort for another in-breath and just enough effort for another out-breath another in-breath another out-breath not often there's not a feeling of that taking a lot of effort and so that small small efforts over and over and over often the over and over and over piece is where our mind picks up and goes oh and if we can just enough effort for this half a breath just enough effort in the walking for instance I would do this in the walking when my mind was really scattered I would you know, be doing walking maybe outside and I'd, I'd pick something on the ground a leaf that's like just three feet away can I be mindful till I get to that leaf yeah made it okay how about that crack okay I made it okay how about that so just like picking up just a small amount to try to be mindful for and then doing it again and again and again the light touch over and over as we do that light touch of effort over and over a momentum tends to build we begin to get the sense of not needing to you know we can maybe go out six feet or ten feet it's like the, the mindfulness seems to carry us there's an analogy I, I like to use for this kind of, of effort um, the, the little um, scooters that kids ride the the kick scooters they have a platform that's low on the ground two skinny wheels and you have to balance on this little platform and tap the ground to get the scooter to go at the beginning you know you have to tap quite frequently you don't have to like tap really hard to get going but just tap 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 momentum builds and then you begin to get a sense of the momentum and you're riding the scooter for a little while you don't have to tap for a little while you get a feeling for when the scooter begins to get a little wobbly put your foot down tap again to balance it out then you ride some more the mindfulness is kind of like that that we do the little bit of effort just kind of like tap 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 just enough for half a breath half a breath and then we begin to get a sense of the momentum of the mindfulness recognizing the mindfulness as we talked about a few days ago and recognizing that we don't have to remind ourselves as frequently and then we begin to get familiar with what it feels like for that mindfulness to get wobbly and to start oh reconnect again remind myself right ah two steps out 
three steps out. A light touch over and over. This is the way effort can build momentum skillfully and not lead to contraction in the mind. Sometimes, sometimes I also ask myself, because uh, if you tend to to over-effort, this is a good question to ask yourself, um, how little effort do I need to be mindful right now? Just backing off. It's like, oh, I don't need to make that much, okay. A little bit less, oh wow, still mindful without trying so hard. How about a little bit less? Wow, still mindful. Oh, gone. Okay, maybe a little more than that. So just beginning to check in for how much effort is useful right now. Over time, this momentum of effort, skillful energy begins to build. The mindfulness goes along for, with that. And we have wise mindfulness with a kind of a more continuity that feels more effortless. It doesn't feel like we're having to do it so much anymore. My teacher, Sayadaw Utejaniya, says, this isn't that there's no effort being made, but it is the Dharma making the effort then. He distinguishes between Dharma effort, Dharma energy, and personal energy. When do we need to actually engage with our sense of making the effort? And when can we kind of settle back and the Dharma begins to make the effort? It feels effortless. But the wisdom and the the Dharma are doing the work for us. And so we cultivate the conditions for this skillful effort, for recognizing our experience, for the continuity of mindfulness. Really, the wise effort is is a real um, support for this continuity of mindfulness. And that continuity of mindfulness creates the conditions for freedom, for release, for wisdom to grow. And yet we have to let go of, we have to let go of uh, like expecting our effort to yield results on our timetable. On one long retreat, um, I was listening to a talk by Kamala Masters who was telling a story about an experience, a teaching she had from her teacher Munindraji. And she was talking about kind of her impatience for getting results. And, and his response was just, you know, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. That image for me became a really beautiful reflection and image. You know, when, when, you know an apple on a tree... It looks red, perhaps, you know, it looks red, it looks ripe. And yet you tug on it and it's not coming off. It's not sweetened on the inside yet. You know, we don't, we don't, we can't make that apple ripen. It ripens in its own time. 
We can support the tree by creating the conditions, nourishing it, giving it water and um, food and light and making sure that the bugs don't eat it up. So we can, we can take care of the tree. We can't make the fruit ripen. It has its own time. And even if it looks ripe, it's still got some sweetening to do on the inside. And sometimes it feels like that. You know, surely, surely there must be some release just like in the moments to come. But no. When the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. So we make the effort and we let go. In the Paramis list, I think it's interesting that patience follows energy. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.